0: is effort virtuous, or is an outcome virtuous? Is it feeding your family? Or is it working hard to feed your family? Like which of these is the proper way to earn your life? And you really have to undo a lot of or look closely at a lot of like societal conditioning, because a lot of the conditioning is work is virtuous, effort is virtuous. And so even then when we have the the machines that are all for us, we find other places to be virtuous by doing effort. The places that we effort now are the places that we haven't yet figured out how to automate away effort because we need to effort it seems
1: This week, I'm sharing part of my conversation with Michael Ashcroft. Now, we ended up deciding to split this into three parts because we covered so much ground. This was a really engaging conversation covering a spectrum of ideas around life, work and attention or awareness. In this part, you're going to hear Michael and I talking a bit more about the Alexander technique and the way in which our attention can shape our lives. So you'll hear us talking about ideas like luck and serendipity and the extent to which we are open to ideas and experiences. and also how we should approach our ambition and the extent to which we should grasp for things and reach for things that are beyond our control. Finally, you're going to hear Michael and I talking about creativity and our writing habits and the way in which awareness can shape our creative pursuits and the habits and practices that we've developed to be able to write consistently. You can get the full show notes transcript and read my newsletter at theknowledge.io. And you can find Michael on Twitter at M underscore Ashcroft. And if you love this episode, please do share it with a friend. And don't forget to leave a review, particularly if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, because it helps us tremendously to reach other people just like you. I want to ask you a bit more about this idea of expanding and contracting in a bit. But before that, one thing I wanted to ask, I guess, connecting the dots of the last two things we were talking about, I feel like there is a sense in which you can max out. You could reach 10 out of 10 through various modes. You can get there by grinding. You can genuinely grind to kind of reach a 10 out of 10 in terms of experience. You can get there through efforts, just, which is not grinding. So it's not like where you still have the clutch down, where you're kind of pushing against yourself, but effort is just, you're trying, right? We talked about this idea of trying. And then there is also the concept of flow. And, you know, maybe you're just kind of effortlessly in that space continually. I wonder, you know, what you think of the contrast between those different modes of moving and if there's anything outside of that which you think is also worth activating.
0: So in your in your three modes, I see grinding as there are parts of you pulling against the the way you want to be going or the way you think you want to be going so like half of you is pushing towards the goal the other half is going like no 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 we can't i don't want to do this and like you're fighting yourself and a bunch of your energy is like being lost to friction internally the efforting version is like when you put in more effort than is required for the appropriateness of the task, shall we say. Like, if you imagine a 100-meter sprinter, they are putting in exactly the right amount of energy and effort and tension into their bodies. If they put more tension into their bodies, they would go slower, right? There is an optimum amount. So if they overtry, it's like choking in sports as well. It's like, you know, I, I, I must, I have to hit this ball because otherwise I'm going to lose my contract and people are going to think I'm dumb and all that kind of stuff. So I'm going to really try. And then they choke and they miss and they have whatever, like it just, it goes badly wrong until they get out of their heads and like just hit the ball. Right? So the thing that I'm nudging towards is not no, don't expend energy towards a goal. Right? It's not like floating through life. It's learning how to deploy exactly the appropriate amount of energy towards something and no more. Right? So undo your conflicts make sure you're all pulling in the same direction and then learn that you don't need to push as hard as you think you do. Because if you do, you'll get in your own way, you'll cause damage and you will actually have worse performance in most cases because you don't need that extra stuff and that's just getting in the way. Yeah, there's
1: two really interesting
0: things that you mentioned there that I had some thoughts on and wanted to know how you would respond
1: to, to the very first thing which I thought was really interesting I loved the way that you were describing I guess you know the, the tension of pushing against yourself and it just made me think of I don't know if you were following this room temperature superconductor phase that yeah. the internet oh, yeah. was going Oh yeah unfortunately through. I got caught up yeah. in that Yeah <laughs> Same and it's funny because every day from from that very first day when the, the paper came out it was back and forth one day I'm super excited oh my gosh it's changing the world the next day someone comes and says it's rubbish and then Quite literally, you know, suddenly I'm following all these superconductor accounts, and and you're getting the minute by minute updates, and each one is back and forth, back and forth. I think the thing you mentioned that made me think about it was this idea of losing energy to friction, and this idea that while we might be grinding, and while we might be trying to do something, and a lot of people might take pride in the extent to which they can grind, if you're losing so much of your energy to friction, or you know, you're losing so much of your energy just as a natural byproduct of this process, how much wastage that is, and how much of that energy could have been converted to being able to do other things and in a similar way when we think of the superconductors if you have to keep it at such a low temperature just to get the the maximum energy out of it you know like how, how much more Could we be getting out of the effort that we're putting in? So I guess that that's one frame that's already in my mind. And then the other one was tying to what you were saying, using the analogy of athletes and yes, you could try really hard. And I think you've used the analogy before of like a child riding a bike and they are riding towards a tree and they focus so much on the tree that they can't avoid hitting the tree. And there's an extent to which sometimes when you're focusing so much, let's say as an athlete or as a performer in the workplace, when you're focusing so much on trying to make your bonus or trying to do the thing. That is in some ways that hyper-focus can lead you to burnout because you are focusing so much on that singular thing that, I guess, you know, a lot of other stuff gets lost in the process. You used too much of your attention on that thing. And what that reminds me of is, I don't know if it was a study, but essentially they just looked at the cross sections of people's brains. They did MRI scans and the MRI scan of someone that is anxious, let's say, because you have stage fright or you're worried about something is exactly the same as someone who is excited, maybe because they're about to jump out of a brain or they're about to do something that they love. Like... To your brain those two states are exactly the same the only thing that changes you is your perception of that state so whether you are extremely anxious and, and worried about something or whether you're excited your brain is lighting up in very much the exact same way but by changing your perception of The way that you interface with the external stimuli the way that you interface with the outside world that is what changes everything about what that experience feels like so a lot of the difference in the experience is what happens in your head so i'd love to know i guess how you respond to to those ideas and how i guess you would connect those dots between i guess one is the internal perception and how we interface with the the outside world. And then the other part of it is, how do we channel the energy that we might otherwise be losing to a more efficient process? You know, how do we become the
0: room temperature superconductor? I love the analogy there, that's amazing. So the thing that comes to mind is that internal story to some extent. Like you mentioned the story of excitement and anxiety, almost like if I feel sensations in my body, I can tell myself I'm nervous, I can tell myself I'm excited. That's just a, a narrative. I think there's a similar thing going on and let's say that the world of grinding at work right a lot of people i think have this narrative that grinding is virtuous right that if they're going through work effortlessly or at least it's not i don't mean to say no energy but like in a way that feels effortless like things just flowing like naturally easily that's not okay right you need to be struggling you need to be suffering you need to be like yeah grinding and people need to see that you're grinding for you to be good. I think that's a really common story that gets in the way a lot. And it causes people to put in a lot more um, visible effort, shall we say, strain than is necessary. And undoing those stories and kind of all of us agreeing, we don't care about how hard you look like you're working. We care about the outcomes. If you can do it effortlessly, good for you, that's even better. I had this experience at school where we had this ridiculous grading system where we'd get like a letter and a number. The letter would be for the achievement and the number for the effort. So A was like top grade and one was most effort. And the way they framed it was that an A1 was the best score because like you got the best grade and you're working really hard when obviously the best grade is an A5 because you're in the top grade and you're not working for it. Like that's clearly that's the best thing. And the, you know, the worst outcome is the E1. And I feel like we're kind of stuck in this A1 mentality in life where if you look like you're not working, then, you know, you shouldn't come to work kind of thing. That's That's not good enough. So I would work on undoing that narrative. The thing that comes to mind with the fixation on the goal, you, you mentioned, you know, working towards the bonus and getting burnout. I think it, it, that's true and it applies at more day-to-day levels as well. So let's say you're working a project and you are working towards a, a goal in a way that you think is the right way. Like you are convinced, you are fixated on doing it this way because that's the way it is done. And because of that, you are not able to notice the 10 better ways that might also be there because you're so fixated on that particular way of doing it so again the expansion of awareness is not just like oh i've noticed space they, they go together i can notice i'm doing this in a very inefficient way or you know my colleague suggested something it's actually a really good idea rather than me trying to get the glory of having it my way what if we just do it an easier way but you have to be able to notice your fixated opinion and viewpoint and way and unfixate from that going like you know what actually i'm going to put that idea down and try it this way and it might work out better. You have to go and try it. So I think a few of these things can come together to create a at least a work life and a, more broadly a life where you can achieve more where the perceived exertion is less and you're enjoying it more because you don't have all this extra strainy, try, efforty thing going on.
1: Hmm. Okay. So I think this ties very well to another question that I had, which was connecting to something you mentioned, which is this idea of you don't want to be in a attentive state all the time. You don't want to be having, you know, expanded awareness all the time. There's this perhaps necessary balance between expanding and contracting. And that has very strong parallels to when we talk about work and play, you know, you have activity and then you have relaxation. What is the benefit of the interplay between these two, they seem like polar opposites. I don't know if you would say that is the case, but yeah, like what's the benefit of having the interplay between those two modes?
0: Between attention and awareness?
1: Between, I think, well, what made me think of it was when you mentioned expanding and contracting, and you don't want to be necessarily in an expansive state all the time, but you actually, maybe there's some benefit in having a balance.
0: Right. So I don't actually know for sure if contraction is necessary. The reason I say that is that For one thing, I suspect that whatever the Alizan technique of enlightenment is for meditators would be like near permanent expansiveness. So you're just like in the world fully. I'm not there. Um, I don't know anyone who is there. The reason I say that is people often ask, well, don't you need to be contracted to do certain activities like writing, coding, high attentional activities? And my answer is always, maybe, I don't know. The reason for that is that I think in a lot of cases, contracted awareness is kind of like a, a strategy for, let's say, poor attention control. When I want to say poor, I don't mean like bad, I mean like imperfect. So if noticing the sounds outside will cause your attention to like just bounce over there, then maybe it's constructive to, to close off the world around you. It's just that there is a cost of doing that. One thing I haven't mentioned about an technique is the idea that mind and body are one process. It's called psychophysical unity in Alzheimer's technique. It's called body, mind, in Zen. Uh, The idea that in this case, when your awareness is contracted, your body tends to follow, right? So if I lose the space above and behind me and my world, awareness-wise, gets small, I tend to kind of shrink down like this and kind of get tense, right? So sure, you can kind of find yourself down here and then like, oh yeah, posture. I'm going to pull yourself up here. But all I'm doing is moving this like tense, contracted thing like down, up rather than if I just expand out, my body can expand into the space as well. So when you do contract your awareness, you do tend to get these kind of physiological stress responses, your your breathing gets more shallow, you have this tension across your body, your heart rate might increase slightly, these things I've noticed in myself. But it works, right? In the same way that you said, you you can get to 10 by grinding, you can get to 10 by efforting, it's just there could be better ways. This is why I think meditation also trains concentration so like, whatever happens in the world, you can keep your attention on the, the breath or whatever it might be. And in, in life, we don't tend to train either awareness or concentration or attention. So to the extent that we're not perfectly enlightened Buddhas, I think some contraction is constructive for the context that we're in. However, I also think that if we were more skilled in all of these domains, we might find that it would be fine to be expanded all of the time. And then we could just keep our attention solidly on something at the same time. Hmm. Something you
1: said brings about an interesting question.
0: Is the flow state expansive or contracted?
1: Like this it, it comes back to this the duality of, you know, okay, you've got flow, you've got effort. Assuming that being in a flow state is a good thing and it's the optimal state that you might want to be in, let's say when you're working, when you're writing, when you're doing some activity, is being in that flow state a state where you are so locked in on doing the work and, and on what you're doing that it allows the work to feel effortless? Or is it that you enter a state of effortlessness that allows the work to feel effortless? Like, is it that you are expanded and so writing doesn't feel like it has any cost? Or is it that you are locked in and concentrating on the act of writing that, you know, time can pass and you can just enter that kind of contracted state?
0: So my theory is that flow and awareness are independent of each other but commonly we access flow in a contracted way. But I imagine like, a, going to my consultant days, a two by two here with awareness and flow. You can have, and most people know about contracted flow. So writing, coding, playing music, it's like kind of, it's in here and then you lose hours and then like, where well, you know, all that kind of good stuff that we know from regular flow. And then of course there's the other two boxes which are just not flow. But the one that interests me is the expansive flow. And I have two examples for this one. One is, imagine like a martial artist who has like, opponents, like one to the left, one to the right, and one in front, and any one of them might attack at any time, but it doesn't know which one, right? That person, that martial artist is about to be attacked. So they're definitely like fully involved in the process of being available to respond. And they are I would say they're in flow, but their awareness is broad and open because if they like get ready for this guy, this guy will hit them, right? They can't get ready in any particular direction. So that would be an open flow. Another one would be like a, a pitch sport, like football or something, where your awareness needs to be on, okay, where's that guy? Where's that guy? Where's that guy? Where's the ball? Like, what time is it? Like, you're fully available and open. And I would hope you're in flow as well. Although looking at the quality of many footballers, I'm guessing they probably not. <laughs> um, but they're fully involved in doing it so that they can respond appropriately. They're not like in their own heads. So I think we just have more examples in at least knowledge work where flow is spoken about. We have examples of like contracted flow, but I think expansive flow is just as much of a thing. It doesn't need to be Contracted to get flow.
1: Okay. That's interesting. And maybe I guess this can take us to
0: talking about your own
1: process as a writer and maybe any processes that that people listening to this might have. So what you were saying makes me think of my own four by four matrix where you might have the balance between discipline and vice and structure versus serendipity. And what I find interesting about thinking of that that framework is I feel like you can find someone on the internet that pushes each corner of that as being the ultimate thing, right? Being disciplined and structured is the perfect way to be as a writer. And if you're disciplined and structured, you will get so much done, and that that's perfect. Or discipline and serendipity. And okay, if you have this incredible discipline of you know returning to your workplace, but also you open yourself up to serendipity in other areas where you can meet people, and encounter lots of different ideas, then that's also the perfect state. Or like vice and and structure, where you know you have some. Very notable people that were incredibly driven to their vices. They, they took the same drugs every night. They do all the same things all the time. They're always high when they're writing. Uh, Hunter S. That S. Thompson, is the, the Exactly. Yeah. That's the requirement of good writing. You have to always be drinking alcohol or even going to the other end. It's like vice and serendipity where I think maybe that's like the complete openness of whatever life brings that will give you the fuel for your, for your craft. And I think that maybe there's a lot of comedians that fall into that category where it's like, I just go out and enjoy life. And that brings about the interesting situations that allows me to to use for my work. And I think maybe there's an aspect of each of these things that people could optimize for. I would love to know maybe, first of all, how you think that framing falls within thinking about like expanded and contracted states and what you think about like what the best place might be to be in. I don't know whether it's specifically for you in your own work or if you would have something you would prescribe for other people to at least
0: to try on on that matrix. I guess it depends where on the journey they are, right? And speaking for myself, I'm very much towards the serendipity end of the spectrum and I am bad at discipline. So I I know that you have a weekly newsletter. It's very good. And you like manage to do it every single week. And I'm like, damn, that is something I've tried to do a few times and I keep failing because I just can't, consistently ship or commit to shipping like that. But my my process is like have lots of conversations, read stuff, and then when something is sparked, then I can like cohere it. I'm also slightly coping because my discipline is quite low in that sense, like I could be better at that. So have that in mind as I'm talking about this stuff, like it's also a sense like I could just be better at discipline. That said, though, I think one of the the failure modes of, of writing is just getting stuck in churning out derivative stuff. If you're very disciplined and structured, then you can churn out stuff that has no insight in it, and that's like that's the risk I want to avoid getting caught up in. I will take the sacrifice of being inconsistent and perceived as a bit, you know, low output if I can come up with stuff that, like, yeah, you know what, that thing I wrote there that feels like I actually contributed something. That feels like it's a I'm contained within it. It's not just a summary of that person's stuff. And that's just it's nothing good or bad about any of these things. I think a lot of people have great success with high volume communication of like good ideas that aren't necessarily their own, that's totally fine. That's just not the path I want to be on. So the link with the awareness, I think is serendipity again, like noticing the $20 bill on the floor, you can only do that if you notice it, if your awareness is expanded. Similarly, if I'm reading something, I want my awareness to be sufficiently open that I can connect this thing with this thing. Like these things are quite far apart or that conversation with this thing I read, that requires a level of openness and an unfixation of how you think the world is for these new connections to be able to be formed. If you have a clear sense of this is how things are, then it's harder to have something disrupt that in a way that could actually be really interesting and useful, I think.
1: Hey, we'll get back to the episode in just one moment, but I wanted to tell you very quickly about my newsletter. I started sharing everything I was learning online and a few thousand people came along for the ride. I send three regular emails, Brainwave, fortnightly on a Tuesday, which is about the intersection between technology, philosophy, and psychology. Then every week on a Thursday, I send revelations, and that's about creativity and productivity. And then finally, every other weekend I send Wayfinder, and that's about decision-making. So people in the audience actually send me really tough problems that they're working through, and I help to deconstruct them using mental models and decision-making frameworks. So if you'd like to subscribe, you can join me and over 20,000 incredibly driven people at theknowledge.io. Okay. Back to the episode. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I think, first of all, I'll just respond to (laughs) you thinking I'm very disciplined. I think I'm definitely not maxed out on discipline. I use some elements of structure as a backstop for my ill discipline, because I have like spurts of discipline. There are some times where I can write every morning and, you know, everything is fantastic. And then I can easily fall off that track. And I think even that takes me to, there's an idea that I went back and forth a bit with uh, David Gravy on, which was my belief in trends over streaks. And so instead of focusing on streaks, which I am very prone to. I think I am naturally very much like a striver. I'm hyper competitive on Duolingo. I think my current streak is like 150 something, but this is the key actually, because I, first of all, I know there's people that have years worth of streaks on Duolingo, but I used to have a streak of about a year on Duolingo. And again, it's for no reason. I don't even think it's necessarily the best way to learn language. I'm not even necessarily learning anything new because I've studied Chinese for years and years. I spent some time in China, but it's just a good way of practice. But I remember I had this very long streak, And then one day it broke and I was like, oh man. And that that was it for probably like two years. I just didn't even use the app anymore. That was it. (laughs) So once the streak breaks, then I lose all the, the tension and the engagement. And so I think what I'm trying to focus now is on, on the trend, which is like, if more often than not, you do the thing that you know that you should be doing, then eventually you'll end up going where you need to go. And it doesn't actually matter if it happens every single day. And in fact, it's almost better that you think of it that way, at least for me, because when you think of it as a streak, as soon as you drop the streak, you're back to zero. Whereas if you think of it more like a batting average, then every single shot that you take is an opportunity to increase your batting average. So it doesn't actually matter if you ever miss a shot. What, What matters maybe is if you continually miss the shots, but after every shot you have an opportunity to increase your buying average. So that opportunity is always there. The next day is always there. And so you always have an opportunity to, to keep pushing that thing forward. So maybe that's what I would say on the discipline front in terms of the other thing you mentioned, which I think is interesting, I guess, going back to this balance of, you know, that, that matrix and, and where you fit on it. I think the serendipity is a key thing. So I, I can tell you maybe a tiny bit about my current writing structure, which I don't know, but. I just have a few small guardrails that help to cultivate the serendipity. So for example, with writing, when I was grinding putting in a lot of effort, that's when it was hardest. I was losing too much energy due to friction and losing all this heat energy, light energy, all kinds of energy was draining out of me because I was grinding so hard, just trying to write one newsletter a week. And it was so hard. I was getting burnt out all the time. And again, you lose the streak, you lose motivation, and all kinds of things can happen. I think what changed is that, so right now, I didn't, I think you've done building a second brain. I don't necessarily follow that kind of rigid process. I have one, I have two databases that I keep all of my knowledge management stuff in and it, saying the word database makes it sound more sophisticated than it is. You could probably replicate this in, in any way that you choose. One is basically just bookmarks. So anytime I come across something interesting, I save it in Notion. What I like about using Notion for that is that it saves the entire article which means I can search for it later. And then I make sure that the title is something searchable. So I'll just add a bunch of like SEO keywords so I can find stuff. And then I have one database, which is notes. So just stuff that I'm writing. And so I don't focus on trying to write stuff every time I come across an idea that I want to write, I just make the note. I just at least write down a heading or a few bullet points. And then I had this system that I called velocity and now it's starting to sound a bit more systemized and it's sounding more complicated, but I assure you it's really not. So I just have this system of like a star rating. So like a one, three and five. So there's no twos, there's no fours, but what that means is however much of an idea that I have. If it's a one, that's just like, it's a heading or it's like a few bullet points. I don't actually, I haven't thought about this too much. I just had the idea. I came across it. A three is like, okay, I've got a few bullet points or maybe like a loose structure. And then a five is like, I've got a few paragraphs. But what that means is that's a small bit of quote unquote discipline or structure that allows me to be extremely unstructured because I don't actually have to sit down and write anything anymore. I almost never do write something from beginning to end. I just throw out all the ideas. We will have this conversation. There's a bunch of great stuff we talked about. I'm going to write a few things down and I might just write one sentence. So then whenever I come to write, depending on how much energy I have, I can go to like the ones or the threes or the fives and just take that thing to the next level. Like I'm not going to finish it I'm just going to say if I just had a vague idea, like a one sentence, heading how can i take that to like a few bullet points and then that's it and then i can go away but what that means is that i have so many ideas because i'm always just like i'm never finishing anything and i'm just always running around having new ideas having interesting conversations and then that allows these ideas to build up so that's why i call it velocity because it's like snowballs rolling down a hill so eventually these ideas accumulate and eventually it reaches like a critical mass where i just have to finish it like i have to write something and then now i have something i can share but at no point did i ever sit down and have to write all of this from scratch because it makes my head hurt it's a lot of work a lot of mental
0: energy so each of your newsletters is kind of it could be weeks or months in the making because you've got like this little snippet that you had that you caught like months ago now it has just surfaced in this newsletter for example
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's so interesting because very much like you say, there's a bunch of ideas that I have. I almost wish I finished it before because sometimes the moment passes, like it might be something that is topical or relates to something topical, or I had the idea and I haven't had a chance to share it. So for example, there's one post. Have I finished? I haven't finished. I can't remember if I finished it, but I definitely haven't shared it, but it's about snails. And the analogy was, it's not specifically about snails. It's kind of about like productivity. So I just found some interesting facts about how I think snails use up to 60% of their energy making the trails because that's how they move around. So they create the snail trails because that's how they get around. And what's cool about this, the snail trails, it allows them to, you know, walk upside down, walk on walls, do all kinds of stuff. Uh, so it's really useful, but it's very metabolically expensive. And you spend, yeah, as a snail, 60% of your energy just doing this thing so you can walk. But snails could move 50% faster if they just used other snails' trails. If there was three snails and two of them just followed the first one, you know, they could all take turns and move 50% faster. But they don't every snail makes its own trail. And so the analogy is very similar to work and a lot of our lives. Very often we could move so much faster if we just collaborated with other people and actually just looked to people that were ahead of us and followed their snail trail and looked for, okay, what are the lessons that I can learn from someone that's done this before? But instead, for some reason, everyone seems to want to do things themselves and people insist on using 50% more energy, making their own snail trail over there because it looks cooler or for whatever reason, but it's completely unnecessary. So anyway, all of that to say, that's an idea I had a long time ago and <laughs> kind of built up the idea. I haven't finished the post, but I've had that idea. It's just been sitting around. I haven't actually sit, sat down to finish writing it. But yeah, that's the kind of thing. I don't know. Maybe one day someone else will write it and then I will wish, oh, I finished that earlier.
0: Well, it's in the podcast notes. You've cleaned it. Exactly. Um, well, one thing that occurs to me actually is like how you select your goal for writing really affects the effort you have to put in. So a lot of like weekly newsletters are, I read these three things this week go over and read them and that's like just read and that's like the low effort end of the spectrum the way that I've tended to do like newsletters is like I had this experience in my life and here's my like processing of the emotional stuff behind it which requires me to have emotional experiences and like want to write about personal adjacent things and it sounds like you've hit a really nice like sweet spot in the middle of you are generating this like really interesting personalized stuff in a way that you can turn out consistently so it's not just here are three links it's like here are my original thoughts. So yeah, I'm going to compliment you again. That's I think that's very difficult to kind of, to be able to do both at once consistently, honestly.
1: Yeah. Another thing I'll add, not necessarily to accept the compliment, but just because this has been a long process of, of striving, right? Because naturally I'm a grinder and, it always kills me like I always end up sick or something always happens it's, it's really not good but I think slowly you get to a better process and it's still not perfect because it's still very hard to have a consistent process of writing and I feel like I'm not as consistent as I could be and all, all of those things but I think the other part that I think is useful about doing things in this way is that it allows ideas to percolate more so sometimes I come across something and I don't necessarily know what I'm going to connect it to because I always like connecting different ideas James Altucher calls this idea sex so it's not just like oh I found this One fact, I'm going to regurgitate it. It's like, I found this fact and it connects to this other weird thing that I came across somewhere else. And the combination of those two things is extremely interesting. So, for example, one that just came to mind, although I can't remember how I wanted to talk about it, was this idea that treadmills were originally invented, I think it was in Danish prisons, as a form of drudgery, right? Like they were forcing prisoners just to walk for days, like for a really long time. And it was stressful. Okay, here's how I wanted to connect it. But again, I haven't finished writing this. This idea that people run for fun. Which is so interesting. Like people get on the treadmill in their gym and they like looking themselves in the mirror and seeing themselves exerting all this effort. And this idea, oh, in fact, as we're talking, this is great because I'm actually writing the post because I'm, I'm seeing how the dots connect. But uh I think it's this idea that, okay, This thing that was originally invented as basically like a torture device, we now use it as a form of, you know, like we get excited by it. It's almost a trophy. You see yourself sweating in the mirror, running on your treadmill. But again, all that changes, like we said before is a perception and it relates to, there's a study I came across a while ago, which was. (laughs) I think, is it Andrew Huberman that talked about it where you have like two mice on different wheels, but the wheels are connected together. And so both of the mice, you want them to get a certain amount of exercise per day. The issue is one mice's wheel is connected to the other ones. And so whenever that mice exercises voluntarily, the other one exercises by force. And so even though they're getting the same amount of exercise, every day, you know, because however much one exercises, the amount the other exercises, the stress differences, right? The differences it has on their brain on how they feel is completely different because one is doing it for fun and the other one's been forced to do it by, you know, forces outside of their control. And it connects to this idea, like we talked about before, where when there's an external force, when your job is telling you, you have to work, you have to do all this stuff, it feels horrible. But when you voluntarily do it, maybe it feels great because you are recrafting the narrative in your mind about how this is amazing i'm achieving my goals i'm trying to lose weight i'm trying to do all these things so yeah that's a kind of interesting idea where i just connected a bunch of random stuff that we just talked about and
0: (laughs) maybe it becomes useful yeah there's a nice um inversion of that as well where you know the treadmill was a a, a drudgery device which turned into a joyous one well joyous like enjoyable the other one of that is like the dishwasher or the washing machine it's like oh I have to unload the dishwasher oh I have to like do the laundry in this amazing time-saving device that people hundred years ago would have killed to have or saved like hours and hours a week Ugh, I have to do this it's just the story it's like if you just went to it, like oh this machine has cleaned all of my things and I was doing some work it would be a whole different experience but we just get stuck in yeah in the story changes the whole experience it's the excitement anxiety thing again
1: how do you think this connects to the idea of i think we talked a little bit ago about this idea of like success or what we optimize for when very much just in line with what you were saying i saw a video i think it was on twitter the other day of it was just like some farm machines and it was one of those videos where you just see them doing like repetitive stuff but it's so cool like you have this machine that can go along and pull rows and rows of carrots out of the ground instantly and i was just noting that in five minutes of this machine switching on it does what used to be an entire day's work for an entire family of maybe like seven people right so people people intentionally built these massive families just so that they could work because if you had a small family you would starve everyone would starve you need a big big family so that everyone can do lots and lots of work and spend your entire day months and months working harvesting all these crops so that eventually you can eat and, and you can survive and it's interesting how we have abstract away so much of that this machine switches on for for five minutes it does an entire day's worth of work and yet the entire family is still working there's less people in the family. So you actually have less mouths to feed, but everyone's still so busy. And it it connects to this idea of, I don't know if it's just a Gen Z thing, but people are like, oh, I'm so tired of work. I hate working. I can't believe I have to do this every day. I don't know if I'd necessarily go to that, (laughs) to that extent. I think sometimes, like when we were talking about retiring, that there is some benefit in doing, having some purpose and having something that you do. But yeah, like how do we find the balance of What we want to be doing and what we think is, whether it's enough or doing enough, I guess, whichever way you think about that, because there's some extent to which you can keep pushing that buck down the road forever, right? You could always continue pushing yourself to do more. You could continue striving to do more, even when you don't necessarily have to, right? You have this magical dishwasher. It should save you hours and hours of time. And yet people are still stressed out having to use them. I think
0: it really comes down to what you define as like a virtuous life. So I was saying before, is effort virtuous or is an outcome virtuous? Is it feeding your family or is it working hard to feed your family? Like which of these is the proper way to earn your life? And you really have to undo a lot of or look closely at a lot of like societal conditioning because a lot of the conditioning is work is virtuous, effort is virtuous. And so even then when we have the, the machines that are all for us, we find other places to be virtuous by doing effort. The places that we efforts now are the places that we haven't yet figured out how to automate away effort because we need to effort it seems so we i think get to redefine this to some extent i think there there is some virtue in trying in you know putting energy towards things and striving the thing i'm talking about here is just you know how you strive i don't necessarily think there's value in over exerting yourself pointlessly that seems counter to to nature if you like i don't see a a gazelle like running fast and it needs to run it or running exactly as fast as it needs to run right wasted energy is a bad thing i think humans are very good at doing more than is required shall we say for some reason we have the the capacity to go beyond appropriateness in that sense so there might be a case of checking in like okay what is appropriate well i can feed my family and it feels effortless cool great i've won you know but there's something in this that drives us to to do more and that's the thing that is worth looking at carefully i'm not saying to disregard it completely and reject it i'm just saying like Keep an eye on it and ask whose interests it has in its, you know, at heart.
1: Yeah. The last train of thought that I wanted to go down. It might be, I don't know, two or three questions, but just following on from what you were saying is I'm interested to know. So you were previously on what uh, our friend Paul Miller would call the default path. You had this job. You were at KBMG. You were going down this path of, you know, traditional success and you've kind of stepped off that and you're trying to reorient yourself in the world. I think there was a bit of a process around that of trying to figure out, okay, how exactly do I use my time, how exactly do I use my attention and my resources, my mental energy, all of these things. You're running the course, you're doing all these things. What I was thinking about, which I think is also interesting, also having spoken to Johnny Miller and Kehi and a bunch of these guys, is I don't think necessarily there's just the dichotomy between or there's just the the balance between default path and I don't know, partless part. I think, or what I'm interested to explore, and maybe you can tell me what you think about this. There also seems to be like the transition point of moving from, okay, maybe how I would frame it, on a, on a spectrum is you have the default path, which is the traditional way that everyone does. And then there's kind of like the country path. A lot of people leave the default path to go on the country path. And that's when you went to Bali, lots of people go to Bali or you go to Lisbon or you go to one of these places and you do a few of these things where it's like, it's not the default path, but everyone certainly uses this other path to figure out where they are going to end up going, which invariably a lot of the activities are still kind of the same. Maybe it doesn't have the same pressure, but it's still another path. And then there is maybe what you would call desire paths and desire paths are what you, it's a civic, you know, civic term of, I, I don't know if it's architecture, but it's a time of, okay. Let's say you're building a park, there are paths you intentionally build, and then there are paths that are worn over time by lots of people wandering off in a very different direction, and eventually that turns into a path. And I remember I wrote this essay, I think it was earlier this year, I think it was called Rules Aren't Real, and it was about this idea that very often the desire path becomes the path. And so you start off with a path where everyone is on. So let's say academia, actually academia, for example, used to be the desire path. It used to be the case that everyone was working and then some people would elect to actually just spend longer training with some masters and learning a lot more. First of all, you probably needed to have some money to be able to do that, but a lot of people would spend most of their time pursuing academic pursuits and that was the desire path. And then slowly over time, the desire path became the actual path and now everyone has to go to school and instead the desire path is leaving school to go off and work and to go and do all these other things. And so I guess, yeah, it's interesting how there's this circular pattern between these three different types of path. I'd be interested to know where you think you are on that spectrum and how you think, like what you think of the interplay between those different paths and how we can orient ourselves between them, obviously, depending on what we're optimizing for.
0: Comment first on the the barley nomading thing, the travel <laughs> thing that, that Paul seems to advocate for is that I think there's something about a lot of us growing up reading the lifestyle bloggers in the, you know, the 2000s or the, the zen habits and the minimalists and that kind of thing. So people of a certain age kind of want to go off to the travel thing. So you know, you've know you been working for 10 years and you want to have a complete change. So you go off and travel and like, Bali is a good place to go. There are other places, obviously. There's also the cost of living difference. So for me, it was a, like, a, I want to go traveling, I didn't want to stay in London, it's too expensive, and blah, 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 that's why I said it. But as I talked to some people who are obviously, like, nomadic by nature, like, Paul Miller to me, feels like he's a, he is a nomad. He could happily move every few months, and that's his preferred lifestyle. I had an interesting experience at the end of my year traveling, was that I realized I wasn't a nomad. Like, this has been really fun, but I like having a sense of place and community and roots, and... I've even been toying with the idea of like getting a part-time job because I miss having colleagues and a team and like working towards a shared purpose. The thing I've been learning is that it's very easy to get fixated on, on a new story. So yes, I stepped off the default path, but I could very easily step onto default path A, or default path two, You know, the other one, <laughs> the one that everyone who quits their jobs goes off and does. And that's a trap, I think. Unless it's not what you actually want, then cool. But this journey is... No, what do I want? What do I want in the absence of being told what my options are? And it might be that I want one of the options. It might not be, but the journey is to figure it out for myself and like see through all the things I've been told all my life and the things I've been told I should want. Now, what do I actually want? And that's a very difficult question to answer because you have to unwind a whole bunch of stuff and then listen to yourself in a way that you might not be practiced in doing up until this point. That's where I am. It's like, I, I could go hard in a bunch of directions but I'm not because I want to, like, check in with myself, like, which of these is aligned, shall we say? which In which of these directions would I not be fighting half of myself because I actually don't like it? And it's not easy to do that, I think. That needs spaciousness and allowing yourself to feel lazy. And I'm very privileged that I have this income stream that... that and I don't work as well, but, like, I know I don't have to work a difficult job. The same struggle exists, right? regardless of context. If you want to figure out what you want, you need spaciousness, I think, for that.
1: How do you apply... I guess your teachings to this practice of carving out your desire path. Like, is there a way in which you use the Alexander technique or expanding your awareness to enable you to think of, I guess it's like divergent thinking, right? What are all the possible paths I could be going down, expanding my attention to think of all the, like I can imagine when you were working at KPMG, you were a consultant, you were a manager, you know, you might just have this trickle of thought in the back of your mind about, hey, there's something interesting that I found. I could go and be doing that. I don't know if your immediate thought was like, oh, I'm going to jump off and go do this full time. Like how has, I guess, going through this practice of using the Alexander technique in your day-to-day life
0: maybe affected the way that you approach your
1: work and play, whatever states you inhibit?
0: Yeah, the main way I do it is to notice the things that I want, I tend to get fixated on. It's like, oh, I could go off and do X. And then catch yourself like, hang on, wait, 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 I was about to reorient my entire life to do this thing. It's a very silly example of this. I caught myself a few months ago, listening to some Bollywood soundtracks. I think it's the, the Dumb soundtrack is great. And I caught myself, maybe it's like a, a mild ADHD style adjacent thing, but I caught myself like an hour later down a rabbit hole of like Hindi learning like okay this is the the hindi grammar this is like all the sounds it's just like the etymology of words in hindi and then i thought oh i could learn hindi wouldn't that be cool and i like looking at duolingo and then i suddenly stopped like looked at myself going like the hell am i doing <laughs> like i have no need or actual desire to learn hindi it was just like triggered by this ridiculous like i enjoyed the sound of this song and suddenly i'm on the edge of like you know doing some short course in hindi for some reason Like that moment is like a a microcosm of things that are happening all of the time. If we don't catch the contraction, you know, I got lost for an hour. I contracted my awareness and I got caught up in this path that wasn't mine. Like that's a very silly example, but being able to notice like, oh, I could write a book. I could make a course on this. people who have like audiences, I think there's always a temptation to make a course on how to grow an audience and that kind of thing. And I've always been like, don't do it, don't do it. (laughs) Don't be the guy who makes money online by teaching how to make money online. Like just, I don't want to go that way. But there's always this tendency of like, oh, you know, I could, I could. And then like the the pause of like, that's not my path. Does this feel alive and aligned? No, no, it doesn't. Leave it alone. But the Alexander Technique kind of creates that spaciousness between stimulus and response so that i don't just go straight in and spend two weeks building some new micro course on something i don't actually care about right? and things like that right that's that's the kind of thing where it comes up and learning to become aware of my own embodied responses, that interoception that that Johnny talks about of like, do I actually feel good when I'm involved in this thing? Or do I feel sneakily bad in some way? Is there like a thing that's fighting me? Can I learn to notice the thing that is pulling against the, the parking brake, the, you know, the, I'm in the wrong gear, that kind of stuff. I am in the wrong gear. I have got the brakes on. Okay. Do I want to grind through this? Probably not. Can I resolve the conflict? Turns out I can't. I'm not going that way then. Right. That kind of stuff is is a slow unfolding process, but it's a valuable one, I think. And that's where AT for me comes in.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think the last question I'll ask you is perhaps a slightly harder version of that same thing you were talking about. But what I'm thinking about is that's kind of like the the freedom from version. I'm also interested in how you might approach the freedom to version for, oh, sorry, that's the freedom to version. I'm also interested to know how you might approach the freedom from version for anyone listening to this that might be struggling with the, the converse, which is, Okay. So on one hand, you were just talking about, okay, you have the freedom to chase all these things and do all of these things. What I'm always cognizant of is sometimes there are some people that maybe they're stuck in a particular position and they want to move or to navigate or to, you know, explore other parts, but they don't necessarily have the freedom. Maybe that they're not making money from some other side gig or they're not making money from doing something else. And they are trying to think of, you know, yeah, the the freedom from version, which is in a similar sense, here are some things I could go off and be doing to allow me to go and live this other life. And that can be its own snare and that can be its own trap very much in the same way, but just simply with a different impetus. Right. So I'd be interested to know how you might apply, I guess, the same line of thinking to someone that was coming
0: from the other side of things. So someone who is in a job, let's say, and in the freedom They want the freedom from their situation, shall we say? Is that what you're pointing out? Yeah.
1: So for example, instead of exploring other options or exploring things you could do simply out of curiosity, you're almost exploring things out of a necessity. Okay. The best example I can give for this is I wrote a while ago about this dichotomy between swimming and thrashing. And so sometimes, and I'm always very careful to catch myself in this, is that sometimes I can be thrashing. Let's say if things aren't going well or I see an opportunity, I am thrashing. I'm kind of like flailing about. And again, you're, there's two modes of being in the water. One is like, you're just thrashing. You're just, oh my gosh, you see something that looks like a life raft. Let me just, just work my way towards that. And, and you're thrashing to try and find some kind of psychological safety as opposed to swimming purposefully. Even if you're swimming in the wrong direction, you probably lose a lot less energy by swimming purposefully in the wrong direction and then figuring it out and turning back and and going in the right direction, than thrashing in whatever way seems to promise the most safety, because you could get there and it's a false economy, there is no safety there. And so I think that is also a trap I've definitely felt myself in. And perhaps there's a lot of people that might also find themselves in that version of the trap as well, where you are exploring things just because they seem safer.
0: Got it, okay, thank you for clarifying. So I guess using your, your thrashing analogy there, There's two versions of thrashing, right? There's one because you're actually drowning or you're exhausted or you're in trouble. You're unsafe in some way. So if someone is thrashing in that sense, then for me, the advice is I find safety, like do whatever is necessary to grab onto something that someone's hand, a raft, something that will keep you afloat and like create embodied sense of safety that you actually feel Okay, I can I can take a breath and relax. That's probably not most people, though, actually. Most people, I think, are thrashing out of a kind of panicky, like trying too hard, like overwhelmed thing. And for those people, like, first of all, I check, am I actually unsafe? Are things actually unsafe here? Or is it other thing? And if you are thrashing out of this sense of panicky effort, then honestly, just what happens if you stop thrashing? Because with the, with the swimming, if you just let go quite a lot, you'll move better, right? A lot of that thrashing makes you sink, honestly. There's an act of courage and faith there, right? Like, you think you're drowning. You think that if you don't thrash, then you won't make it. But actually, that's not the case. If you just stop, then you find that you float and you have more energy. There's that moment of, like, I guess it's something like bungee jumping or, like, doing a parachute jump or something like that, but you have to trust that the thing will catch you. Will this be okay? Oh, it turns out I stopped thrashing and I'm okay. So the move to notice the extra effort you're putting in and then just stop doing that and see what happens can often unfold into, oh my God, I was just putting in like 10 times more effort than I needed to, everything's actually totally fine. And now that I've stopped thrashing, I can just like swim in the direction I wanna go in. This might need help. This might need a conversation with people. This might need like all kinds of restructurings. But the first move there is to just like stop thrashing. But only I think once you've actually ascertained would it be safe to do so. If I'm actually drowning, I want to grab something before I just like stop swimming.
1: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think it's the courage to break away from the instinctive, you know, just reaching out to grab something as a default. And sometimes I've definitely caught myself doing that in the past where yeah, because there's a perceived lack of instability, you just reach out to grab the nearest thing or to go and do something else. But funnily enough, kind of like you are alluding to, sometimes you could reach out and grab something and that thing ends up to be a worse thing than the boat you just jumped off of, right? You thought you were in trouble and now you've, you're out of the frying pan into the fire. You've gone and grabbed something because you wanted to grab something. And now you're doing something that's even worse, even more painful, even more stressful than, than what you were doing before.
0: That's exactly what I did when I left my, the job I burnt out was like national grid. UK and I went to KPMG of all places. Like, that was not a good move. (laughs) Like, that was a thrashy move and I suffered for it. So, I agree with you that the courage move of like just ask yourself like the stoic question like, if the bad thing comes to pass, how bad is it really and can I recover? It's Tim Ferriss's fear setting, it's you know, premeditatio malorum nothing of like, if I get fired, if I don't do this project, if whatever. Will I be safe? Do I have savings? Do I have family? Do I have like support mechanisms? If yes, can I give myself a week of not thrashing to get myself some headspace and see what happens? Okay, cool. Then reflect. It's Again, it's Johnny Miller's nervous system mastery stuff. It's his, okay, right now I'm thrashing because I'm super activated. I am like in a stress response, I'm in mean, fight or flight. Deal with that first and then look around, right? Because as long as you're in that narrow focus, like danger mode, you'll probably make bad choices frankly so deal with that first and then yeah see what see what appears to you once you're no longer in that hyper agitated mode perfect
1: this is uh, sage-like wisdom and i'm glad we covered it from a variety of angles but yeah michael thanks so much for making the time this has been a really great conversation and i'm sure a ton of people will find it extremely useful i've really enjoyed it thank you so much for having me thank you so much for tuning in please do stay tuned for more. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps the podcast. And follow me on Twitter. Feel free to shoot me any thoughts. See you next time.